Hello and welcome to episode 25 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a fantastic few weeks, or a couple of weeks. Um, I've had lots of positive feedback on this sort of new structure, if you like, um, and a few of you have already got in touch with ideas for people that I should look into um, covering the lives of. So if, if you are listening to this and you have an idea that you'd like me to look into, then feel free to give me a shout and I will do just that. As I said in the last episode, I've got a few ideas um, myself that I'm currently looking into. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, feel free to get in touch. Um, a lot of you are really enjoying uh, the Bobby Graham story as well. Um is something that's really interested me. Um, and before we start, I'd just like to tell you about some books that Leslie has got hold of. Um, so there is a, a chap in the, in the UK who's written a book about Bobby Graham. Um, and Leslie sent me a copy uh, which arrived on Saturday. And I haven't started reading it yet because I'm currently reading another book. But it looks incredibly well written. And uh, if you pay a little extra there's a cd that comes with it which i have um which has a is a collection of bobby graham's tracks i know that leslie only has 16 copies of this book <laughs> 16 one six copies um so if that interests you i'm going to post a picture on my instagram of it today um and today is monday the 29th so it will have been yesterday if you're listening to this on the tuesday when this comes out um so go and have a look, and if you'd like a copy, uh, feel free to message me, and I will put you in touch with Leslie um, to sort you out a copy. I know that a lot of you guys who are listening are over in the States, um, or further afield, you know, not further afield, but um, we have some listeners in Canada and all over Europe. Um, I don't know what the deal with posting out, but feel free to get in touch and we can sort that out. It's all, everything is achievable. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll uh, just get straight on. Um, I was I feel like I was going to say some other things, but I won't. I won't bore you anymore. <laughs> I'll let you crack on with the rest of this conversation. So here we go. Um, we start off talking about Dave's work with the Dave Clark Five. So there seems to be a, a reasonable list of of um, of artists that he was recording with. A lot, and um, so he was doing a lot of film sessions. We've spoken about the the um, James Bond, and you know Dave Clark Five is obviously where where your expertise is. Expertise is John. I, I'm interested to know what um, Bobby's relationship was with that band and how those sessions, uh, you know, how how many and how often, and all you know all the details surrounding his work with Dave Clark Five. Well, initially, the the Dave Clark Five were a dance band. They, they were never a beat group. Um, you know, the Hollies, the Beatles really started out as beat groups. Dave Clark Five were, were playing waltzes and foxtrots in dance halls, which was the music in the early 1960s. In, in fact, you know, most dance halls, the Mecca organisation, if you went along on a Saturday night, they played waltzes and foxtrots till about 10 o'clock. And then the last half hour, they would put the same band would play something a little more upbeat, and that that was how the Dave Clark Five started. And uh, they they had a contract with Ember Records, 
and made a couple of records which didn't do anything in the charts. And then they got a, a contract with Pi uh, on the Piccadilly label, did a couple of records there. Nothing happened. Um, in the meantime, there were a resident band at the Mecca at uh, Basildon, Basil Lucano. And they got spotted again by another rep, this time from Colombia. And uh, they were given a contract of three, you know, basically three three tries or you're out. <laughs> and the first the first try failed miserably. Uh, and the second one that came along was, was Do You Love Me, which was the first time that Bob drummed for them. And um, it was decided to try a totally different sound. And uh, they came up with this with you know, sound, Adrian Courage, the uh, recording engineer, Les Reed, the musical director, came up with this new sound where the drums would be right to the fore. And, and Bob was decided that he was decided Bob would be the man to do it. Um, and Dave Clark, who could play the drums, but was the basic average drummer, wasn't, wasn't really up to it, certainly not in the studio. So they had to get Bob in, and uh, and that's that's where it all took off. But as for, he didn't really mix with the group at all. You know, he he and Eric Ford would turn up and do the drum and bass track, and then then they'd go off to another do another track somewhere else, <laughs> and the other guys would then come in and do their 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 pieces or, or their overdubs. Um, so they didn't really see a lot of him to be honest. Something that I find interesting, just as, as a bit of a, a side note, is the fact that then, um, I suppose, in compared with now and the way that everything is is uh, visible now, and back then it, it wasn't so much. So a, a band like Dave Clark Five could go through numerous different guises before making it, and it didn't really affect the way that they they were perceived. And... You know, they say that you say they had numerous tries with numerous labels, and um, I would assume they were all under the same the same name of of Dave Clark Five. I could be wrong, but then then they suddenly they get a, they get a uh, you know they 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 hook it and and it's and it's there yeah. and it's fine and and now we'd be conscious of um, of damaging a reputation. You know, you're, you're almost if you flop, have a flop, you're damaged goods, and that just certainly wasn't the case back then at all. You know, you could keep plugging away at it until it happened. Yeah, I kind of think if um, if Mike Smith hadn't sat down and wrote Glad All Over and if Bob hadn't really hammered the drums on it, then nobody would have heard of the Dave Clark Five like the Kinks. They were on that three, three strikes and out, and that was that three strike. If, if, if Glad All Over hadn't become a hit, that would have been it for them. I don't think they would have got a fourth try. All three of those songs you've described are pretty drum heavy, and mm. I, you know I'm, I'm they're great songs. It's not just Bobby that made them, but he seemed like the perfect you know serendipity that he was playing on those songs, and what those songs required was what we've described in his drumming. You know, really loud, good, great feel, confident. But what happens when you talk to someone who's loud? You get louder, don't you? Because you want to be heard. Yeah. I think that's what happened with the rest of the band. I think that his drumming and the, the drive of it elevated the band to bring their A game as well. Um, and that comes through the records so so well. Certainly did. There's, a, there's an interesting story about that, that, um, you know, obviously Clark was a, a good-looking guy 
and they decided, well, we're going to have him up front with the drum kit and the other guys behind him. And we've got this loud Bobby Graham sound. This is what is the, the, the records are going to all be about. And of course, he got a contract with Rogers Drums. So he's up there with the Rogers Red Sparkle drum kit. And no, this is going. <laughs> they made it very, very big in America. As you, as you well know, they were bigger in America than here. And uh, Rogers had a, an American bass as well. So they, they, they were up there again, the Rogers Red Sparkle on the Ed Sullivan Show, Carnegie Hall. There it is, right up front and center. And all these American drum enthusiasts are going out and buying Rogers drum kits because they've seen Dave Clark playing it. And it doesn't matter what they do, they can't get the sound because it was Bobby Graham on a Carlton set. <laughs> a Carlton set made for him by Johnny Dallas in London, a custom-made set. And it didn't matter what they did with the Rogers set, they could not get that sound. And Bob had his snare turned right the way mm. up tight, didn't he, Les? Yeah. And, and um, they, you just could not get that sound out of Rogers set. So Rogers sold thousands of drum sets to Americans uh, for, for a sound that they could never make. Let's <laughs> <laughs> oh, take a quick hello to a guy called John Sparkola, who helps us a lot on the site, who was one of those guys who bought that set and he still has a grudge about it. <laughs> And um, Bobby wasn't, you said earlier about being bitter. He wasn't bitter about Dave Clark at all. He wasn't. But he did have a very smile. And one day he told me about all those people that brought all the drum kits thinking they could sound like him and they could never do it because they're the wrong drum kit. So he wasn't bitter, but he had a little little wag at his expense. Yeah. That's that's hilarious. It's just like a, you know, obviously the Beatles thing with the Ludwig kit and you could get that sound. It did sound like Mm. Ringo. (laughs) I, I absolutely love that. I mean, so much of it's down to the player as well. I mean, they'll be hearing, presumably they'll have heard Dave Clark playing live and, and uh, they won't have been able well, to sound like it anyway. Well, well we, 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 we another, uh, another chapter there. We haven't time to go into all this, but um, there's two distinct opinions. There's, they were very much like the Beatles concerts, I understand, where you couldn't hear the band clearly. Or the other people say that the sound was just like the records. So you can do your own mathematics on that one. <laughs> well, there you go. And then, then it was, if it was the record, it's Bobby uh, playing on his Carlton kit, and <laughs> they're not going to get that sound anyway. <laughs> Did he have any particular um, particular sessions that he that stood out to him that he, he spoke about? Um, in the book, and I didn't talk about them personally, was this French chanteuse called Françoise Hardy. He absolutely loved doing her sessions. It might have been the fact that she was a very attractive lady with a lot of charm, <laughs> but he genuinely enjoyed that. But the she, kinks were always... She was my girlfriend in the 60s. She didn't, she didn't know it, but she was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, th- there's no doubt his favourite sessions were the kinks. Absolutely mm. the kinks, yeah. Yeah. And... Was that just because they were? It sounds like they were quite relaxed guys. I mean, he um, from what I've read, they were never they never complained that Bob was there recording the sessions. Um, they made him feel like part of the band, and um, you know, with what John said earlier about how Eric Ford and Bobby played on the tracks, and that's typical of many a session where they were brought in, did a job, and then left, and they weren't part of the band. But with the Kinks, he was part of the band. But he also knew he wasn't there to replace Mick Avery. He was there to help them launch a career i 
I, it just goes to show his, uh, I guess, his humility and where he, he knows where he stands in... I'm struggling for the right words for it. Not necessarily pecking order, but, you know, he's he's got no ego that, that's desperate to stay at the front, um, you know, to be in the limelight. Although, having said that, I know he had a, a solo career briefly and, <laughs> and did other things like that. So, clearly, there was a part of him that, that did want some of that. Yeah, there was certainly a part of him. And I was talking to John about this yesterday. Um, you tend to find lots of 60s artists, particularly when they play now, they when they there's a moment when they get to their solo and you can see their face lighten up like Christmas because they know the light's going to be in them and for that moment they're going to get the, the acknowledgement for what they did 50 years ago and there's there was that aspect from Bobby but humility definitely he was you know the person that I knew was very humble as I say for five years I was a friend and had no idea what he had done <laughs> so you know he wasn't like oh did I tell you about the time but he told me a few stories afterwards I've got to say there seems to be uh, a, a couple of uh, specific stories about particular artists that were difficult. I mean, Dusty Springfield is is a story that um, that I've got here um, about. Um, I mean, it says she had a thing about drummers. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of artists who have a uh, thing about drummers. <laughs> um, Dusty Springfield was a, a, a female singer in the male industry who, when you think about the 60s as well, and perhaps the struggles that Silla Black had to be heard in a natural voice. And Dusty Springfield was a brilliant singer, perhaps the finest this country's produced. Yeah, yeah. And to she had to be that person to get what she wanted, because otherwise she would have been told how to sing. She was a perfectionist as well. Um, everybody who, who worked with us said she was an absolute perfectionist. It had to be exactly right. Um, and I think that's where Bob would be the man. Um, to make sure the drum part was correct. It seems, uh, there seems a big thing, I mean, I've talked about it numerous times on the podcast, but a, a big um, divide between the American sound and the British sound. And I suppose that, um, I mean, just the, the quote that I've read from Bobby talks about her for Dusty Springfield's frustration with not being able to get the American sound um, because... I mean, they're using English equipment and mm. <laughs> and English musicians, and you know, no matter how great of a feel Bobby had, it's not going to be exactly like some of the American guys. It's not going to be exactly, but there's a massive um, Phil Spector influence on a lot of the recordings. Uh, so she had a fair go, I think. <laughs> um, so then, I mean, the, the, f- following on from the session scene, um, he started to do a bit of production. Mm. Um, which is a, a thing that you see a lot in drummers. I mean, he, he clearly knew how to, to get on with people. And, you know, he, he clearly was able to, to to sort of interpret. I mean, Dusty Springfield's a great example. Interpret what people want from their music and, and help uh, help that process along. Well, I think John knows probably more about this than me, but his uh, first real job was for the pretty things. And the reason he got the job was because no one else could hack it. To be honest, they were such boys in the studio, and at the time he was a bit of a drinker and a bit of a social player himself. And he that, he kind of fell into that job and did a brilliant job on the first album and the second he produced as well. Yeah, with the pretty things, they were renowned for being difficult. Um, there were very very good musicians. I, I talked to John Maxworth, the record engineer. And he told me that if they booked the pretty things in for a session, they would book an afternoon session 
and tell the pretty things it was a morning session. And that was the only way they would get them in on time. I said they would drift in, in ones and twos, hung over from the night before. He said, but once they sat down, they were absolutely brilliant musicians. We said it was just getting them there and sitting them down, sobering them up and getting them to play. And as, as Leslie says, I think that Bob would be the ideal bloke for that rather than some uh, music director who was probably 30 years older than them uh, and from a different <laughs> life altogether. Um, these art students, you know, they were all ex-art students and uh, knew how to enjoy themselves. And, and uh, I think Bob fitted in better than uh, the older music directors that they were, that they were having to uh, answer to. There's one thing we can't work out on, on the first two albums because there's definitely Bobby playing on there, and there's Viv Prince who who inspired Keith Moon. Let's this is how good a drummer he was. But the way Bob told it in his book was that that when Viv finally made a session, they'd stick him on the stool, and if he could stand the stool without falling off, he played in the session. If he didn't stand the stool, Bobby sat in. But <laughs> the, they were two similar drummers, so it, you really have to know your drums or have to have been there to know which one did what which track. Yeah, I suppose Bobby at that point will have been, you know, you say he's a bit of a drinker, so he's he's able to get on with them on that level. But then also his some of his experiences with, um, you know, for instance, the Joe Brown Band, mm -hmm. which was a very disciplined band, will have um, sort of held him in good stead for for times like these where mm -hmm. you, um, you know, it's all right to have a laugh, but the bottom line is you've got to get down to business, and mm -hmm. and um, you know, they're going to listen to somebody that they respect. So if if he can command that respect in a way that um, in a way that they understand, that's what made him such a good producer for the mm. young younger artists. Most definitely, yeah. And you know, he, he. I think the big thing was for that band, as John alluded to, a lot of the producers that they were asked to work with didn't understand them. Well, he certainly understood them. And I, I kind of think that when the session got going, it probably just was play, press, play, and record, and let them do their thing. I don't think he had to do too much production there, to be honest. <laughs> It sounds like a producer's role uh, was it's the traditional producer's role, isn't it? I mean, I found the, found the same discussing with um, with Shell Talmy. I'm not mm. suggesting that they didn't have to do very much at all, but you know, the modern day interpretation of what a producer is is certainly very different to what what uh, sort of Bobby's role will have been back then, which was probably more of a mediator, <laughs> yeah, a, facil <laughs> a facilitator, mm. um, you know, than um, somebody who's actually involved in any of the mechanical side of the recording. Yeah, again, I don't know too much. Maybe John does, but um, he certainly wasn't an engineer in the studio at that time. He, he did develop those skills and to become quite a good producer, but he was more facilitator, more of an organiser, perhaps the, the one that was the best to hate about the band as well. Are we so we're talking about um, Fontana Records, is where he started mainly producing. Is, is, am I correct with that? I'm, I'm sort yeah, of... pretty things were on Fontana. And they Fontana actually did release um, Skin Deep, which I found a recording of on YouTube, um, which was a uh, um, a cover version of a Louis Belson drum uh, drum track uh, that he played with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. I mean, that's sort of harking back to to the jazz thing, and it really shows off. Not that he was just a solid pop drummer, you know. I use pop in the in the sort of uh, R and B term, but. 
he really was a, a genuinely accomplished drummer. He was he was fantastic, and you can hear it on that recording. If you'd seen him be literally carried onto the drums and then play that solo, which I've seen him do twice in my life, then you, I was just in awe. And at the end of it, he'd have to have about a five minute break to get his energy back again. <laughs> because, but he would never hold back. You never got a fifty percent performance from Bob. You'd always get 100, 110%. And he loved doing that song. He absolutely loved it. What I'm going to, I'm going to put a link to that, uh, so that the guys listening can hear it. Uh, I'll, I'll find a, the YouTube link. Um, did, was he disappointed that his sort of solo stuff didn't do more and he didn't carry on with it? Or did he ever speak about how, would he have liked to have done more solo material? Um, I don't know. Personally, uh, he may have told John about this, but it probably wouldn't have been good for him because had he joined the Beatles and been open to the success they'd had had, he wouldn't have coped with it. It wasn't in his nature. Um, he was more of the, the man that John described the Beatles session who turned up, played a session and, and go. I think every artist, like Mickey Most, for example, had a pop career before he was an excellent producer. They all had a go, but I don't think it was no more than that for Bob. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're correct there. And um, another point about the session musicians, and with no disrespect to Bob at all, was that a lot of session musicians didn't have the persona or the looks mm. to be pop stars. <laughs> um, you know, you ha there, there was a, there's a big difference between somebody who could front a band and stand there with a microphone and look good to all the mm. women and and some of the session musicians just weren't that person. Uh, they were good at what they did, but I don't think they could ever be band leaders and, and pop idols. Were you, John? Were you aware of this scene when you know in in when you were sort of growing up with that stuff and and into the Dave Clark Five? Were you aware at all that uh, that this sort of session scene existed? No, not at all. No. Um, I can't really recall when, when I discovered it, but uh, I, I didn't really know anything about session musicians at all. Um, it, it was just something that came along later on when I heard about the Wrecking Crew, for instance, and, mm. you, and said, well, you know, there were session musicians in England as well. Was there? And then suddenly <laughs> you find out, well, all those records you've been listening to, they are actually session musicians. And it, it comes as a big shock, and, and there's a lot of people still, still yeah. don't believe it. To give you a perspective, probably 60 or 70% of the records that you heard in the 60s had session musicians. Um, you mentioned in your podcast, as she'll tell me, about a session where the, the band turned up and none of them played, and I've sent you a link to that. There was a yes. band called the Staggerleys that came down to do a session, and not one of them appeared in the records. You did get <laughs> Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, Eric, Alan Whale, Eric Ford, you got Bobby Graham, but not one of them because they just weren't capable of doing the session. Um, and one other story I'd like to share is that I got contacted recently by a, a lead guitarist from a very famous 60s band who actually has a different persona on Facebook so he doesn't get bothered. And he was arguing with me about Bobby's input in, into a particular track. And he may be right, I don't know. But a lot of 60s musicians still don't want people to think it wasn't them on the records. Whereas they're the ones who have got the notoriety, the success, and they're the ones that could handle it as well, like John was alluding to. Um, 
and they still want the public to think it was actually them that did this. And, and there's still a lot who think it was them that played on the record. <laughs> there would be a case where people would do a session, and I'm sorry to keep talking about Dave Clark, but Bobby did tell me this one story where the, the society was getting used to the fact, or suspicious, whether it was actually Dave playing on the records. So he held a recording session in the, and invited the journalists, and he gave them lots to drink first. And in the session, he played drums, a basic drum track. It, it could have been glad over, but it wasn't one of the more complicated ones. Uh, and then when the session finished, Bobby was wheeled in to record the drum track that was playing the records. And these journalists would have thought, oh, I heard that, I saw it, and then that's the record. And they put all the bits together. But the reality was, it wasn't that. The other thing that happened was that in, in a lot of cases, the, the, the group would come in and play the track and then the, the producer and the record engineer would listen to it after and then bring a session musician in to, re, to redo it. So the group went away and then listened to the record and said, oh, it's all us, we sound great. <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't, but they didn't know that. They didn't know they'd been overdubbed or whatever. Um, you know, they still think they played on the records. It's it's absolutely mind-boggling, and uh, I mean, I, I'll be honest. When I started this podcast, it's not a subject I anticipated talking about. To be honest, it didn't even cross my mind. Um, but it's it's such a huge part. Uh, you know, I, I I always I keep bringing it up, but the Beatles, uh, you know, mm. seem to play. They played their own instruments. They played not. Yeah, they did, and and that's where if your perspective of the 60s music like mine is comes from there you're, you're not necessarily aware of this scene too much and actually it was it was the norm it seems like that was the, the Beatles were not mm. the normal at that time no they weren't the norm and the other funny thing was I was a massive Beatles fan growing up and I wish I knew more about Dave Clark 5 because I've learned subsequently that they produced very very good music and lots and lots of it and not just the familiar songs a lot of the album tracks are great as well but I didn't know about those, but I was a Beatles fan growing up. And to me, yeah, that was the norm. The four guys that played the records that took you to these magical places. I had no idea about session musicians. <laughs> it seems a bit like, uh, you know, the sort of image in my head is is of it's sort of the grown-ups being the record labels and the session musicians doing all of the stuff. And then you get the, the pretty young singers um, in their, you know, in their sharp suits, all matching to stand at the front and sell the records, and um, not even they're aware of what's going on behind the scenes, as yeah, you, as you've just exactly said, John. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's it, uh, you know, in in a sense, it gives it gives us something to talk about, but it's not the pretty side of the music industry. It feels, um, it does feel a little bit. Uh, I mean, I guess that's just what it was, but you know, I uh, yeah. So if they had had Pro Tools back in the day and had had three months to record a single, then they probably wouldn't have needed a session edition. They could have, they could have cut and pasted themselves all over the place. But they had three hours to do four songs. And they had to be hits. And if they weren't hits, the band was dropped. That's the way it was. Yeah. I mean, but that's the beauty of it as well. I mean, if, if they if they had 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 all the, you know, the... the uh, the gear that we've got nowadays, we wouldn't have had those amazing records. No, we wouldn't have absolutely. had those, you know, the mistakes that we we've yeah. already spoken about, like uh, you know the uh, the hit at the beginning of mm. the Kinks track, and um, that was a mistake. And that's that's what we love about that era, and mm. that that music's exciting because it has the that feel to it. Um, what was what was uh, Bobby's overall 
uh, sort of outlook on on that period of time? Did he have a, an Loved over? It. He, he looked back on it fondly. Yeah, absolutely. Towards his later life, um, and this is where I really came into the scene, um, he had regret that he hadn't got the recognition he deserved. That's the only regret that he had. And that's kind of why I do what I do and why John does what John does because of the people he supports as well. I just try to let people know a little bit about what this guy actually did because otherwise it would just be a name on a, on a type thing. But one of the, the most... Joyous things for me was, was two things I'd like to say. One is discovered so many people that did know about Bobby who shared their experiences on a Facebook page we have. And the second, I went to saw Sunny Afternoon, as I said, the the uh, Kinks. And I went backstage because the two guys that played Ray and Dave were absolutely superb. I went to say congratulations. I really enjoyed the show. And I said, do you know about a guy called Bobby Graham? Yeah. And it was like brilliant. I was like, yes, you know, no, because... I can't half expect them not to know anything about him. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing that really makes it worthwhile. It's, I mean, it's the same for me. I, 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 I'm enjoying learning about the more I look into him, the more I discover. And it's, you know, I can't wait to get a copy of, uh, of the book from you unless <laughs> when, when we, we finally get one. Um, and uh, I just, I'm excited to, to know more about him. And it's like a, it's like a thread being pulled, isn't it? As soon as you start looking, you know, or what's the, what's the analogy? It's peeling, peeling a wallpaper off the wall. Once you peel a little bit, you, you can't help but peel it all away and just be like, oh, I can't believe he did all this stuff. Um, it is amazing. And does he, I mean, I suppose I, I'm sort of hesitant to mention it, but his drinking did get the better of him towards the late 60s. Um, and... He sort of seemed to fall out of the music scene a little bit, and um, and he got himself sober in the two thousands, if if I'm yeah. correct. And yeah. was that around the time that you met him? Yeah, that, that's about the time. I think he, he was sober before two thousand, but he was definitely um, sober when I met him. I, again, I would never know he was a drinker. It was two Bobby Grahams. So, but um, yeah, he certainly was a drinker back in the day. Um, there's no doubt about that. I I suppose that. It's, it was a boom time for the music industry and that it was almost, uh, you know, he will have had, um, what's the word, cartage for his drums where they would have brought the drums to the sessions and he probably would He took them himself. He'd pack them in the car, unpack them. Um, there's a famous bit of video which unintentionally we sold to Jimmy Page. There's yeah. a video of Jimmy arriving at studios in the 60s where Bobby took before Jimmy was known. And in the video, you can see Bobby, uh, someone else shot this, unloading his uh, drums himself, which he had to do three times a day. Jimmy would turn up with his, his little guitar, that's it. But Bobby had to unpack the drums. And for anybody like yourself who knows about that, he would unpack and pack them three times a day, every day, and had to cut them himself. So, yeah, it, there was nobody carrying drums for him. <laughs> well, I'm showing my ignorance. I see the word cartage written down. And to me, cartage means, you know, if you're... In in my eyes, he's a, a you know successful session player, and it, and you know Cartage is successful session players now often have companies that they will pay money to go and set the kits up for them, and that's Cartage means that. I mean, presumably it's actually just petrol costs and just the cost yeah. of the fact that he has to drive there and, and lug it all in. So uh, yeah, ex- excuse my ignorance, <laughs> but then it will have been a a time when he's a. Uh, you know, drinking and driving doesn't matter so much. And he's, it, it, you know, presumably yeah. it was just a fun time to exist. And he's, it's exciting that he's doing all these sessions. And I mean, I, 
it was probably very tempting or not even aware of the fact that he was get, falling into drink and it was it was just happening. I don't think there's drinking and driving it because during the day they'd be working. It was yeah. after the sessions. So that was when the drinking would take place because they didn't have time. Okay. Yeah, he might he might have a in those days he might have a quick one in the pub between sessions, but you you're not talking about, you know, turn up to a session drunk, but certainly drinking afterwards, yeah. Okay, so yeah, it makes it, it, I think that the the point I'm I'm getting to is uh, trying to get to is that it was an exciting time to exist. Mm. Yeah. And there was definitely, you know, not a, not a party atmosphere, but a celebratory atmosphere yeah. because there's a lot of money floating around and a lot of mm. good sessions happening and um, mm. everything was moving very quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, stuff was recorded and released very fast and whether people knew them or not, they were hearing themselves on the radio or were aware that other people were listening to them on the mm. radio. So it must have been a very exciting time for them to, to be a part of. I think at the time it was going so fast they didn't appreciate it. It's only in later <laughs> life when they look back. Um, but let me tell you a story about one famous session for PJ Proby and Hold Me. And the session was booked from 10 to 1, and PJ arrived at 10 to 1. <laughs> so there's likes of Jimmy Page and John Paul and Bobby there, who by the time that he had arrived, they um, they knew the song backwards. And they did what they really had chance to do, they actually rehearsed the song. It normally is... John said earlier, they'd have sheet music, they'd learn it and then, you know, get the feel quite quickly, but they actually rehearsed it. So when he arrived at 10 to 1, they recorded the song and the B-side from 10 to 1 to 1 o'clock. It became number one. <laughs> Amazing. Two Absolute. one takes. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Um, I just want to finish off by mm. speaking. Uh, we, we've discussed um we've kind of been talking about the site so the site is i will have spoken about this in the intro and i, I do an outro to these podcasts too so I'll, I'll talk about it then as well but you guys both both run a facebook page um dedicated to telling bobby's story well it was started by a guy called john ellis from um america who started it and he's he's a, a real fan of session musicians uh and then he invited me on board um and another guy called John Smarkola, who's very much into uh, technical side of things. And John helps as well. So there's kind of four guys that kind of do it. Um, but we've hit some big numbers. So in the last year, we had 250,000 views of the videos we put on there. Wow. Um, we've got 800 followers at the moment. Um, and, you know, if it's 800 or 8,000, it doesn't matter because the people that are there are there because they want to be. Uh, and... I guess the, the only re regret is there's not more material out there. I've literally gone everywhere I can find to find videos of the time and, and I've recolorized them and I put some of them through Pro Tools to give a little bit more life to the recordings. But there was such a lack of material from that time. So that's the only frustration. You know, I'd love to have the 150,000, sorry, the 15,000 tracks and stuff, but they're, they're not there. As I said earlier, it's not even a list. I can't even find the list. <laughs> Um, there's, I mean, I've found, I, I've probably, I've found, you know, a handful. I, I could make a Spotify playlist of some of them, but I'd need, and you guys obviously know a huge amount more than I do, and it need. I, I, to, Let me throw some names off to you. So the ones I just did from memory: the Kinks, Dave Berry, Dave Clark Five, Kathy Kirby, Francois Hardy, um, Eddie Mitchell, John Layton, Dusty Springfield, Petula Clark, Peter and Gordon, uh, Michelle Ponroff, Joe Brown, them, Farron Morrison. Baby, please don't go. Gloria, here comes the night. You know, Tom Jones. Yeah, that's just a few names. <laughs> I think it's probably easier 
to list the stuff he's not on. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, and it's so frustrating when you when you talk about the how much he's done and how little information there is, or um, not information, but sort of information on on what recordings he's on, and sort of you almost want there to be to be some sort of um, like an all music credits page where you can just scroll through them all and go like, oh, he's on all of those tracks there. <laughs> No, well, just doesn't this exist. is why we need a time machine. So if I had <laughs> one, I'd love to go back there for a, a year just to have the excitement that John had, you know, being there, because I wasn't there at the time. I was too young, unfortunately. But, yeah, that's why we need a time machine. Well, that's why I think that, I mean, what you guys are doing is um, so admirable and, and sort of um, what I my, – my podcast in, feels like it pales in comparison to the <laughs> effort that you're putting in. And I just love that – you know, I ultimately I'm having a really great time learning about all of these things, and I love, yeah, and I I just love that I find I find people like you guys who are working really hard to keep the fire burning, like as as um, clearly Bobby wanted, um, and with sort of uh, gradually peeling back that wallpaper and finding out more and more stuff about about these guys and this sort of like. Um, as I said, like a hidden part of the industry that I didn't even anticipate talking about. Um, and that's why I don't know names. You know, I didn't grow up knowing the name of, of Bobby Graham. I just knew, you know, now I suddenly go like, you know, of, of course I've played Kinks covers. <laughs> I played Kinks covers at Butlins. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've done exactly that. And, and uh, you know, you, I, you have no idea who the, the sort of renown of the person I'm, I'm learning the parts for. Don't forget, we're talking about one musician. There was so many others. Yeah, he was one that we knew, us two guys knew, and that's why we talk about him. But he was one of many that did that. I mean, I've been one of a, a, a sort of a trend I'm seeing in trying to get uh, to get people to come and speak to me is that a lot of these guys who've gone on and had. Um, so, I mean, Bobby's career seemed to sort of peter out into the 70s and he went mm -hmm. and did some other things. And some of the guys who've carried on, who carried on working, have told their story a few too many times and just don't want to talk about it anymore even though i would i would say to for my generation and younger than me there's more that needs to be told mm. i think there's more that needs to be found out and um it, i think it's great that um bobby was happy to speak with both of you so um in depth about mm. what he did and he wasn't tired of talking about it and and was happy revisiting it mm, i think so yeah um so amazing i mean i uh oh it's so one other thing we should i should quickly mention is uh about the um bobby's book that we mm. spoke about um i think before we started recording but so um well i'll les do you want to speak about it quickly yes yeah, so bobby wrote a book with a, a leading barrister called uh patrick harrington he's one of the country's top barristers actually who was actually just a fan of bobby's um and the book was printed in 500 copies. They became sold out and become quite a rarity. And they pop up on eBay every now and then, people asking 80, 90 pounds for them. And I managed to get hold of, from Sean, Bobby's son, about 25 copies, which I sent all over America and all over Britain. Uh, and then there's been another demand. So I reached out to Patrick Harrington. He's had some more printed. So in about a month or so, we'll have the book. It will be sold for seven pounds from the website plus uh, wherever posted to wherever you are in the world and one pound of that's going to charity which it basically just covers the cost of the book because all Packet wants to do is to um, to get people have the chance to read it so it's not a profit engineer it's a pro it's a sharing information um, in when, fact when, that should oh sorry God John when the book came out originally this was with it mm. 
Ah, it's a, a CD, the, the Session Man. Um, so is that a compilation of tracks he's played on? This this is Bob playing on with his own band um, on some of the more famous ones that he did for other bands. Um, and I don't know, Les, is, is the CD still available? Um, yes. Um, Patrick's got some of those as well, so I can try and get some of those as well, yeah. I think it, this will be going out... Uh, around about the time people are listening mm. to it, hopefully, if, if, if it is a month that you're hopefully getting these, and it should but be around the same time. I have to say, there's one thing that won't be given away with the book. <laughs> oh, a pair of bobby sticks, amazing. <laughs> yeah, this is my pride and joy. This is his last pair of sticks he had. Fantastic. And I don't know if you can see clothes, but they've been... They've got marks on them. Yeah, beautifully worn away, love Balls it. Away. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. I... Uh, so, uh, how? When did he stop playing? He's um, touring, touring around with his jazz band. Or is it well, just he, around sort of where you guys are living? Yeah, he did jazz band. He also did a lot of school performances. Yeah, he, um, he had Alan Warner of the Foundations, one of the original Foundations, in his band. Uh, all, all the session musicians, um, and he would go and play for schools, and that's where I kind of got involved. And I filmed some videos in playing at schools for kids. Um, and his last performance, I was there, I was at the, the barge in Hartford, which was about six months before he passed away. Uh, and the last song he played was Caravan. Wow. That was a, a, great, a great final song. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he started a jazzer, he ended a jazzer. There you go. Amazing. <laughs> what, what, so I'll put links to all of the stuff that we've been speaking about, and I'll try and, um, I'll try and compile some uh, interesting... Uh, recordings that I can find. Yeah. Hopefully, you guys can help me with yeah. a bit of that. Just, just to give anybody who was a bit like me and didn't know an awful lot, just a bit of a of scope about of, of what's there to listen to, and and you can really hear some of the things that we've been talking about. And I hope that the people listening to this will go back and revisit some um, Kinks recordings and Dave Clark Five recordings now with fresh ears. And and uh, I would say to the people that don't not enjoy the music because the music is still fabulous, but it's oh. just worth knowing a little bit more about how the record was made. Yeah, I suppose that that links with uh, you know it's kind of what I was interested with John. What you finding out slowly that these weren't the people that you thought they were yeah. at the time. But did it, it sounds like it hasn't ruined it for you. You're, you're, I mean, you're here talking about it, so well, it must have made not. it better. I mean, the other four guys in the group who I know very well about, you know, unfortunately three of them are dead now. Um, but no, they, they all had good words for Bob and, and Eric. And um, no, it doesn't spoil me. I know they are all good musicians in their own right. So no, it hasn't spoiled it at all. Fantastic. All right, One thank thing you. That you might try to do um, when you get round to listening some to some records, uh, and I think it's a good one to listen to is um, Brian Poole and the Tremolos did uh, "Do You Love Me," okay. and the Dave Clark Five did "Do You Love Me." They were both released the same year. They were both recorded at the same studio, and Bobby drums on them both. Ah. <laughs> Very interesting. Right, I've, written, I've scrolled that down, so I'll I'll link to those. As I, I mean, I ha, I can't, I haven't got them on, on the top of my mind now. But is can you hear similarities in the drum part? No, not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, um, I, I would have thought it was quite funny where, where it, I don't know uh, he recorded the Dave Clark Five one first, so it must have been quite funny for a few days later to be called into a studio 
and say, oh, what are we doing? Oh, you're doing Do You Love Me. Oh, I did that the other day. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's, it's incredible. I, I just love that idea that they're getting called into the studio however many times a day and they just don't know what they're doing. Uh, I just find that amazing. And they could have played on, you know, 12, 12 tracks a day and just, just boshing them out. This quickly adds up to the 15,000, doesn't well, that's it? Right. <laughs> if you think about it, the group have probably written the record themselves, they've practised it upstairs in the pub or wherever, and they've got it all set, you know, to go and record it. But the session musician who turns up, he's just given a bit of paper, a bit of music, and said, get on with it. <laughs> and he, he doesn't have a chance to record, to practise it or anything, he just has to go and play it, whether he's a drummer or guitarist or whatever. He's just got to go sit there and do it. Uh, so that that is absolutely amazing to me that they could do that. It it really does show how just how talented these guys were, and um, you know I think it's uh, it's very easy for um, particularly I find younger musicians, which is a, a lot of the reason that I I want to do this. That they they hear those records and they think, you know, um, they might hear a, a Kinks track and think, oh, the drumming on that's really simple. And it's just, that's not it. That's not, you know, we're not talking about the technicalities of, of which order the notes are in. We're talking about, you know, how the notes are played and the feel of it and, mm. and some really intangible things that make somebody like Bobby as great as he was. Mm. Um, and I, I love just what you've spoken about, John, about the fact that they could go in and just do it when it was taken, some of these bands will have rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and they come in and, and knock four out in three hours. <laughs> you just think, that, that's it's incredible. Three times a day. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it just shows how good they were. Mm. Um, and there's, just because the part is simple, uh, oh, I mean, you've only got to listen to that Crazy Drums track I spoke about, and mm. then you realise how just, how tech mm. he was technically proficient as well mm. as having the great feel and the, the, the confidence and the loudness mm. and all the stuff that, that makes him so great. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, thank you both so much for coming to speak to me about it. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for doing what you do as well, because you're doing the same as us. We just want people to know about you know, the history that went behind the music. I, that, that's it, exactly. And I, I will link people to the Facebook page and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully there'll be a few more followers and I look forward to keeping on uh, reading a few more of the stories that you post and listening to some of these records. So there we have it, uh, the life and career of Bobby Graham. Um as I always say, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, been listening to loads of the Dave Clark Five over the last couple of weeks and lo- trying to find more stuff that um, Bobby Graham's played on. And it's been a really lovely and eye-opening little adventure into a particular, um, a sort of particular 60s, uh, I don't really know what to call it, musical genre, if you like, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Um like I said at the in the intro, feel free to get in touch with me if you'd like a copy of the book. Um, I will start reading it and post on my Instagram about uh, about it being good. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I'm really excited to read it. Um, I love reading these sort of niche little books about um, people's lives and getting a, a a sort of an insight into an area of um, of the music industry that we don't often get to see. 
next week, I not next week, in two weeks' time, I am chatting with Ben Pike, who is a good friend of mine from Leeds. Um, he is a, a musician, multi-instrumentalist, um, and a producer, and we've worked together on a couple of records. Um, and now... Uh, he runs a mastering studio called Rare Tone Mastering, which is a analog mastering studio, and he has some ridiculous pieces of gear um, that are very sort of Beatles related. Um, there's a, a Fairchild and a Curve Bender EQ he's got, and, they, and loads of other stuff. And I was really keen to pick his brains about the mastering process specifically and how he uses and chooses to use those choice pieces of gear that he has got. So if you're curious, look into Ben before that conversation. It's Rare Tone, which is R-A-R-E-T-O-N-E, Mastering. Uh, he has a, a website and he's also on Instagram. Um, and he has, I mean, he masters all sorts of stuff, but recently I know he's been doing a lot of um, kind of power pop stuff. So um, it's worth just checking out his uh, his sort of Instagram feed so you know what he's working on because it's always really incredible to check out. Um so prepare yourself for a little bit of a techie episode. Um, I, it, obviously, it's going to be in two parts, and it, at, at one point it gets very... Uh, I ask him some quite nerdy questions about how he goes about <laughs> mastering stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that you will enjoy that conversation. Um, yes, so that's that. I would like to thank you all once again just for listening to this. You know, as I keep saying it, but the, co- the podcast is growing every every episode I put out it grows more and more and more and I again as usual I can't believe how much it uh, has grown from um, you know starting this just under a year ago so yeah thank you all for listening and spreading the word and um, just being part of this uh, sort of a little adventure that I'm on so yeah thank you um, if you'd like to get in touch with me for any suggestions or anything my website is allyouneedisdrums.com and there is a contact form there or you can email me joe at allyouneedisdrums.com um, and my instagram is at allyouneedisdrums so feel free to get in touch um, and that just leaves me to say thank you to joe kane um, of the poppermost fame for the intro and outro music he supplied for this podcast, and my good friend David Henshaw um, for the artwork that he supplies every fortnight. Have a wonderful couple of weeks, and I will see you back here, or listen to you back here in two weeks' time with Ben Pike from Rare Tone Mastering. Goodbye!